anticipating for the last couple of weeks. Uh, one of my daughters told me before, she, before I got up here, Dad, I, I hope it's okay. I couldn't wait. I had to read the rest of the story and find out what happened. Um, I assured her that was fine. Uh, in fact, would that we all had enough hunger for God's Word that we couldn't stop reading. Amen? Um, that would be a very good thing indeed to be excited to find out what God has to say to us. Uh, but I want you to put yourself in the story for just a minute. Uh, this week is about two brothers, one of whom cheated and stole from his brother in such a way that it fractured the relationship, and they didn't speak to one another for 20 years or seen one another for 20 years. And one of the reasons for that is that the one who had been cheated and stolen from made it known to his brother that the next time I see you, I might run a sword through you. Now, that's a fractured relationship. But put yourself in the story for just a second and consider, maybe you have an ex-boyfriend. Maybe you have an ex-girlfriend. Maybe you have an ex-wife or an ex-husband. And the last time that you talked to that person, the room was full of rage and shouting. Or maybe it had gone beyond that and it was just quiet, seething defiance as you shoot daggers across the room at one another with your eyes. Maybe a business partner cheated you and you walked out. Or worse, maybe you cheated them. Maybe your church made decisions that you disagreed with and you stopped coming and stopped talking to those people anymore, except maybe when you run into them and there's kind of a polite but sort of tense chance meeting. Maybe you've lost friends or maybe you've had strained relationships over some issue or other and you've stopped speaking and you no longer really think of them very much at all except with pain. And if you don't have any of those kind of people, maybe you could come sit next to me and be my friend and carry some of mine, (laughs) because I have some in my history. I have people that, for whatever reason, maybe for a variety of reasons, people I'm not friends with anymore, along with family I haven't seen in a long time, and some of that is my fault and some is not. And on both sides of the coin, I'll have to tell you, there's a little bit of heartache. How about you? Anybody else got any of those? I got my fair share. Okay, more than I want. The ideal number of ex-friends, by the way, is zero, right? (laughs) Of family members you no longer talk to is the same number, zero. But I have some of both. Now, imagine that you've got a reunion that's about to happen, only this time the playing field is not level. You're not going to be meeting like, you know, at Starbucks for coffee and, you know, some of those chocolate graham crackers they sell there, you know. You're not going to be having pound cake and, you know, a a white chocolate mocha uh, because this person is coming with 400 men at arms against you and you and your entire family, your closest loved ones. 
Now, you can imagine the heartache and the pain, but can you imagine the fear that you would feel? And that's where Jacob is. He's standing on the banks of the Jabbok River as the brother he cheated, who threatened to kill him, is coming with his army. And when we last saw Jacob, remember, he's disadvantaged even further than that because he's limping from an all-night wrestling match with God in which he got his new name, Israel, and got crippled for life. As God reached over and dislocated his hip, this is in a day prior to, you know, the advent of OSF and those replacements, <laughs> okay, uh, where if you dislocated your hip, you were just, you've got, a, you've got a stick to walk around with for the rest of your life. And that's where Jacob is. He's hobbled. He got a new name, Israel, which means both God fights and He fights with God. And the point of the wrestling match and the new name was for Jacob to learn to stop fighting against God and everybody else and stop his cheating and conniving and learn to trust God and let God fight his battles for him. It was given also to remind him not to act like his former name, Jacob, which means basically the cheater, the conniver, the heel grabber, the guy who trips you up. Don't act like that anymore. Act like God fights. Trust me, and I will fight your battles for you, and I will bless you, and I will go on ahead of you, Jacob, and you will have a new name if you trust me, Israel. And he's about to get his first chance to test this out, and it's a big test. Can you just imagine this? A couple of squadrons of soldiers are advancing on your but on your little company here. And here comes this people, all these people, and you've got, let's see, women, children, sheep, goats, and a stick to walk with. And here come these guys with swords and shields and spears. This is not going to turn out well, at least potentially. And you're going to have to trust God and let him fight the battle for you because you're going to lose if it's all up to you. Let's pick up the story. Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went before them bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, there's some some stuff in here that's going to pay dividends later in Jacob's life in a real negative way. Remember that before he crossed the river, he divided the family into two camps. Well, now he's going to divide it a little further in order of their importance to him. So he's going to put... The maidservants, the two concubines, Zilpah and Bilhah. Those of you who are, are expecting a child, you know, maybe you pick out that name for one of your kids. I don't know. But in any case, Zilpah and Bilhah and their two kids, and they're, uh, they, they're in the front of the line. In other words, closest to the attack. And then, Ra- and then Leah and her six boys and her daughter Dinah, they're in the middle 
still near the front. And then at the very back, he puts Rachel, the wife he loves most, and her solitary son, Joseph, furthest away, with the best chance of escape should they be attacked. Now, I don't know what it does to you to basically have your dad tell you you're expendable. But this is going to bear some very bitter fruit later on in this family. And as he is approaching his brother, he is bowing to the ground. And the one good thing about Jacob is at least he is leading the column. At least he's enough of a man not to say, women and children first. Uh, no, literally, you, you first. <laughs> first to get whacked. I'll be back here in the rear. He does go out ahead of his wives and his children. And he's bowing down before his brother. He's prostrating himself before him like he's a royal figure. Let's see what happens. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near they and their children and bowed down. And Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Jacob, I mean, last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. You know what's ironic about this bit? Is that the man who has every right to be offended and to hold a grudge, and who is justly owed as the older brother, his younger brother's subservience, the man who on top of that is a pagan with no regard for the things of God is the man who acts most like a godly person should, Esau. You know, Jacob is coming slowly and he's bowing and scraping and Esau is actually running to meet his brother. Now, you may not know this, but in, Middle, in the Middle Eastern culture, the more dignified you are, the slower you move. And if you are a man of honor, you don't run anywhere. You have servants, and they run, but you don't run. You walk, and you walk slow because you're a man of importance and dignity. Esau is a man who is wealthy enough that he is able to afford a personal army. He is equivalent to an ancient nobleman. He, is, he has more troops than a lot of kings. In his day, he is a wealthy, wealthy man of importance. And yet when he sees his brother a long way off, he hitches up his, you know, robe and runs to meet him. 
And he doesn't run to stick a sword in him. He runs to hug him. And he throws his arms around his neck and he kisses his brother. And he's happy to see him. And when all the advantages are on Esau's side, he doesn't think, well, now it's time for a payback, big boy. Now I got you. He doesn't think that. Instead, he greets him. And he hugs him. And he kisses him. And the two brothers fall apart weeping together. And there's just this great, wonderful, joyful reunion Because on Esau's side, there's no lingering hatred, there's no resentment, there's no lack of forgiveness. Instead, there's just joy. But here's the the tough part about this whole thing, is that Jacob, the man who supposedly has the covenant with God, and he does, the man who has a new name from God saying, I will fight your battles on your behalf, that brother is the one who's reluctant. That brother is the one who's aloof. That brother is the one who's kind of standing off, even while he's hugging his brother and crying with him. That's the one that's still reluctant and still doesn't trust and still hasn't totally reconciled. And so there's a reunion, as I titled this message, there's a reunion, but there's there's, there's, there's no reconciliation. There's no real reestablishment of relationship because Jacob chooses, though God has fought the battle for him, though God has softened his brother's heart toward him, though God has, has caused the older brother who would never run to greet his younger brother with great joy and hugs and kisses. And yet Jacob is still at a distance. He knows the evil that he's guilty of, and he knows that Esau still has those 400 men at arms close by. And so while he's grateful to be received, he's still not quite ready to embrace his brother with his heart as well as his arms. It's been 20 years, and trust is far from being rebuilt. They haven't talked, and so Esau opens the conversation. He's like, well, introduce me to your family. Who Who are all these people? And so, first, of course, because Jacob has fearfully divided his family, here comes the, the concubine wives and their boys. And Jacob introduces them, and they bow to my Lord Esau. And then Leah and her sons and Dinah all come up, and they bow and introduced. And then last, Rachel and Joseph come, and they're introduced. And then he asked, well, what's the deal with all these animals? You sent 550-some animals ahead of, me with some, ahead of you with some swords. What's the deal with all that? And he says, well, they're, they're a present. He says, well, I know, but why? You're my brother. I'm a wealthy man. I don't need anything. I don't need a few more sheep, a few more goats, a few more donkeys, camels. I, I don't need anything. I'm already a wealthy man. But I want you to notice a couple of interesting things here in the text. He, 
The gift that Jacob sends, he calls actually twice. In the text here, it reads, uh, verse 10, my present is how the ESV renders that. It's literally my blessing. And then later on, verse 11, my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me. Twice in the space of a couple of verses, he refers to that as my blessing. And that's intentional. Because Jacob, remember, cheated Esau out of his blessing. And so Jacob is trying as best he can to sort of smooth that over. And is saying, well, let me give you some of my blessing that you were supposed to have. And look also at how Jacob sees his meeting with Esau. He says, it's like seeing the face of God. Now, Jacob had earlier that day just seen, literally, the face of God. He had seen the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity at Peniel the night before and that morning. And he doesn't mean... He does not mean, Jacob, you know, you really resemble the guy I met earlier today. That's not what he is talking about. What he's saying is, is that the way this reunion has gone reminds me that I saw the face of God and he promised to go before me. That God is really with me. That God really is fighting my battles for me and being reunited with you like this reminds me that I really did see God earlier today. And that's why he also says, because God has dealt graciously with me. You know, and when he says, accept this from my hand because God has dealt graciously, he's not just meaning that God has given me a lot of livestock. He means that in the fact that he and Esau have united in peace instead of in warfare, that God's grace has been revealed. And after this, Esau finally does accept Jacob's gift. He keeps urging him to take it. Oh, take it, take it, take it. No, I don't need it. Take it. But notice one other thing. Look how Jacob refers to his brother. He refers to himself as your servant, and his brother as my Lord. How does Esau refer to Jacob? My brother. My brother. Like I say, it's totally ironic in this passage the way that Esau, the unrighteous pagan guy, <laughs> refers to Jacob the righteous man who knew God, and the way that Jacob refers to his brother. Because in this story, Esau reveals himself to be more a man of peace than Jacob is. Let's move on. I'll just leave that hang there. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way. And I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. 
Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And therefore, the name of that place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. You know, Jacob has been delivered. He has no reason to fear his brother. He and his brother are at peace. And Esau, again, ironically, wants to protect, not hurt, his brother and spend some more time with him. You know, they've just reunited. It's been 20 years. And Esau is saying, essentially, hey, why don't you come down to Seir with me? We'll get time to talk. We'll have coffee. We'll milk the goats together. It'll be great. Come on down. And I got these guys with me, and they'll watch over us, and so we'll be protected at night. It won't even, won't even matter. You won't have to worry about it. Come with me. And Jacob says, oh, you know, I mean, I got all these little kids, and I got nursing, you know, nursing flocks. And, you know, if, if we can't keep up with you guys, and you're, you're I mean, you guys are all, all hard military fellows, you know, you can, we, we just... All my little nursing flocks will die if they have to walk that fast. You know, you just go on ahead. I'll catch up. Is that true? No, that's a lie. Jacob is still a liar. He's going to learn not to be later. But this is a lie. He has no intention of going down to see his brother. He just wants to get out of this situation. And Esau's like, well, Okay, but let me just leave a few guys here with you to protect you. And, you know, there's bad guys out here in the wilderness. So let me leave a few guys to, you know, you got a lot of stuff here. You know, don't you worry? I mean, obviously you're crippled up. So, you know, you need somebody that's able-bodied to help. And Jacob's going, no, 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 we'll be fine. Don't worry about us. You go on ahead, I'll catch up. And so he's like, Esau's like, oh, okay, I guess I'll see you down in Seir. You know, come see me. Uh, Mikasa, Sukasa, we'll see you around, okay? Oh, that's great. It's really great to see you. So, you know, it's been 20 years. You know, don't let it be 20 years again. Oh, so yeah, it's great to see you. Bye. And off he goes. What's Jacob do? He doesn't head south. He takes a hard right turn and goes west about four miles over to a place uh, that's still on the east side of the Jordan, a place called Sukkoth. Why is it called Sukkoth? It's because Sukkoth is a word that means either booth or maybe a more modern uh, rendering would be like shed. You know, because at this place, he would live there long enough to build himself a house, and he also built some sheds for his livestock to get them out of the sun. And he hung out there for a while, and then apparently they 
ate the grass down there, and so he got to find new pasture and so forth. So he heads off actually over the Jordan into the land to a city called Shechem, which is named after the son of the founder of the city, whose name is Shechem. And Shechem is a city that you actually know. How many of you have all read the Gospel of John? Raise your hand. You read the Gospel of John. You remember the story of the woman at the well? Remember where Jesus meets the woman at the well, and she says, Our father Jacob gave us this well and drank from it himself. Well, actually, where they're meeting at that well is Jacob's well. It's in a city in what later becomes known as Samaria, but in Old Testament days was known as, uh, this city was known as Shechem. In Jesus' day, it's called Sychar. Okay? Same place. It's located between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, where the Israelites have a covenant renewal ceremony as they have crossed into the land with uh, Joshua. This is an important place because these two mountains symbolize God's blessing and God's cursing. One of them, Mount Gerizim, is lush and covered with greenery, and one of them is bald and desolate and has nothing that grows on it, and that symbolizes cursing. And so half the tribes stand on one, half on the other. In Jesus' day, it shows up as Jesus had to go through Samaria, and he meets the woman at Jacob's well right there. And this is where Jacob pitches his tent, and this is where he lives, and he buys some land there. So, and he starts to become part of the surrounding culture. And that is going to be very problematic, as we'll see next week. Because his daughter is going to start to assimilate into that culture, and that's going to cause some real serious problems. But that's next week. This week, Jacob, even though he's lied to his brother one more time, by the time he gets to Shechem, he is worshiping and obeying God. He has returned to the land as God had commanded him, which is good, and he builds an, an altar there at this place in Shechem. And he names it El Elohe Israel, which means God is the God of Israel. In other words, God is the God of Israel, Jacob. He's my God. And Jacob's faith is starting to grow, starting to develop and grow deeper, and that's good. Now, there are a few things I want us to really get hold of out of this passage. Um, you know, here's the thing. The intention of studying the Scriptures, the reason that I get up here every week is not because I like to hear my gums blap, although I do. <laughs> okay. Uh, those of you who know me know that I like to talk, right? Um, I do. But that's not why I get up here. It is because the intention of the Scriptures is not simply informational, it's transformational. God wants us not simply to be smarter sinners, but to be transformed into the people who are partakers of the divine nature, who walk with God, who look like Jesus, and who obey Him, and who conduct their lives in every one of its aspects, from how we sleep, to how we work, to how we are married, to how we parent, to how we cut our grass and live with our neighbors, have once every aspect of our lives brought into submission to Him. 
and that by the word of God and by the spirit of God using the word of God in us, that we would be transformed into God's people. And if you want to know what is it that the elders pray for, you know, every now and then we have a meeting and we put the notes in the bulletin and we say the elders are praying for various things. Well, one of the things that's a top prayer request in, for our elders, for our church, is that our people would be transformed by the word of God into God's people who look and behave and speak and think like Jesus. That is our burden. That is, the, that is why we are elders. That is why we try to serve you. That is why we provide opportunities for you to learn God's word. This is why. This is why they let me preach up here for 40 minutes every week. Because it is the word of God through the spirit of God that transforms people's lives. Amen? So there are a couple of things I want us to get hold of out of this text and to be transformed by. And the first one is real obvious. What's Jacob's new name? Israel. God fights. So what do we need to learn from that? That God fights. That he, if we trust him to fight our battles, that he will. That he will fight our battles for us. And, uh, and as I've said before, I have lived long enough that not everybody that I've ever been related to is still my friend. I have got people in my history that don't, not only don't speak to me anymore, but won't. And I bet you have them too. And, because, and, and I'll bet that grieves your heart just like it grieves mine. There are people that I think of that every time I think of them, I think of them with pain. Because I have not been able to reconcile that relationship. And I doubt that very many of them are planning to meet me, like, you know, outside of town with an army of 400 guys. But here's what I do know, that those situations are beyond me. They are beyond my control. They are beyond my effort. They are beyond my ability to, to fix. And so I have to trust God to work and to bring peace and to reconcile because God is always always, always faithful to his word. And when Jacob trusted God, what he got was a tearful, joyful reunion with a brother who ran to meet him. And what I want to encourage you with is that when you are in an impossible situation, maybe it's a relational one, maybe it's one at work, maybe it's one with an ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-spouse, maybe one with a child that doesn't want anything to do with you, whatever it is. When you encounter an impossible situation, we have a God who specializes in the impossible as we trust him. And you know what I found out? That as I trust God, He's still faithful to his word. There are still people out there who aren't happy to see me. That's the way it is. But you know what? There are also people out there in my life who used to be unhappy to see me that now are. Why? Is it because I'm a brilliant fellow? Is it because I'm just extra nice? And I'm hard to stay mad at? Uh, no. Ask Karen. 
<laughs> okay. I'm not that charming. <laughs> it's because as you trust God, he works. And he can bring reconciliation out of even deep brokenness. And that leads me to my second point, and this related, that God is the ultimate peacemaker. And I mean that not only that God is the one who ultimately works to bring peace between people, although that's true. What I mean is, is that God in Jesus Christ, as Paul says, was reconciling the world to himself. That God is the God who makes who gets rid of his enemies in one very unusual way, he, he makes them his friends. If you are a Christian today, I have good news for you. It is because you who were formerly an enemy of God, who was antagonistic toward God, who wanted nothing to do with God, is now able to come to peace with God and be adopted into God's own family because God is a peacemaking God. God is a God of peace. And through the cross, he makes his enemies his friends. And that leads me to two conclusions. Number one, a question. Have you made peace with God? Personally. You know, a lot of people grow up in church. I did. I went to church every time it was open, which was five nights a week and twice on Sunday when I was a kid. And I never, until I, was, uh, until I was older, really understood what it meant to come to peace with God. I had heard Jesus' name more times than I could count. I spent five years studying Isaiah at one point on weeknight Bible study. I don't know what Isaiah is about to this day, but we looked at it three verses at a time. <laughs> okay. And so what I'm saying is, is it's possible to hear all about Jesus and to attend church for a long time and never come to peace with God. Have you done that? Have you ever come to peace with God? Have you ever placed your personal trust in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life and to make peace with him? If you've never done that, today is the day to do that. Be at peace with God, not just for today, but forever. Second conclusion is that if you are at peace with God, then it is absolutely inconceivable that you would be at war if it depends on you with anyone else. That's why Paul says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Amen? And that leads me to my third point, which is this, that we all ought to be peacemakers. If God is the one who makes peace, then we ought to be people who make peace, right? What Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called what? Sons of God. They'll be called sons of God. Why? Because they're doing what God does. So I want to give you, as we close, Seven steps to biblical peacemaking so that you can be, in your personal relationships, a peacemaker like God is, okay? So that you can have not just 
reunions with people, but reconciliation too. These are out of your Bible. First one, examine. Examine your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own actions to discover and own how you are wrong and accept that you are part of the problem. That you are part of the problem. That where there is warfare between you and someone else, that you are part of the issue. Jesus said, first take out the what? Plank, log, big piece of lumber sticking out of your eye. <laughs> and then you will be able to see clearly to take the sawdust out of your neighbor's eye. So first you want to examine yourself. And then you can know how to deal gently with other people. Secondly, forbear. In other words, put up with minor stuff. Everybody's got some kind of quirks and idiosyncrasies and stuff. And some of us, as I heard somebody say, are looking quirky in the rearview mirror. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're beyond quirky. But some of us have some stuff, some peculiarities, some things that are just the way we are. And if it's not a big deal, be willing to put up with it. Proverbs says it's to the glory of a man to overlook an offense. You know, some of us are just, you know, we're just bulls in the china shop. And we don't know better. We're just dumb. <laughs> okay. And give us a little grace. Right? Forbear. Third thing, if it is a big deal, go. Go directly and quickly. Don't let, you know, six months go by. Don't let a year go by. Don't let a decade go by. Twenty years. Don't let grass grow under your feet. Go quickly and directly to the person as soon as you become aware that this is a problem and I can't ignore it. Go in love and go to either inquire of the person or if you're at fault, to confess. Go whether you're the sinner or the sinny. And also, be sure to avoid triangulation. Triangulation is where you loop in a third person who's not involved to get them on your side. To tell them about how awful this person has been and to ask them what you think God's will would be on this. Okay? Let me tell you, Jesus has already told you what his will is, and it's to go between the two of you. Read Matthew 18. It's in there. This is God's will. Go directly to the person, and don't pass go. Don't collect any additional folks along the way. This is not monopoly. Go directly to the person and solve it between the two of you. If you triangulate, guess what? You're in sin, and you need to repent. Fourth thing, confront. If it is a big deal, if they've sinned against you, go. And then when you go, confront. Confront lovingly and confront privately. And then if it can't resolve it, 
confront with a witness. Now, this is the point where you take a third person, and this is not triangulation. This is, hey, I need somebody to help me encourage this person to be reconciled with me. If you're the sinner, next one, confess. And this means to admit humbly without qualification, condition, or excuse. Let me give you an example. The most beautiful words in the English language are these three. They are not, I love you. Okay, those are good ones, but those are second best. The best ones are these, I was wrong. And then you put a period right there. And you don't go on. You close your mouth. You don't go, I was wrong, however. That's where people want to put a comma in. You know, I was wrong, but I was wrong, and this also happened. And if you see my behavior in exactly the right light and in the right way, well, then I was, you were contributing to the issue. No, you own your junk and own it and say, I was wrong, period. And then say, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And if you've been wronged, you release those who have hurt or wronged you. When it says that God forgives and he forgets, it doesn't mean that God is senile. What it means is that God chooses not to hold grudges against us for what we do. Somebody asked Clara Barton one time about some great sin that somebody had committed against her, and she said this. It was beautiful. It's very Christian. She said, I distinctly remember forgetting that. There's a lot of truth to that. We don't hold it against that person anymore. Forgiveness means to release them from the guilt they bear. Last, restitution. Make amends. Compensate fairly. Repay as much as you're able those who you hurt or offended. That's certainly enough to chew on for one week. Amen? All right. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us. God, our Heavenly Father, I do pray that your word would sink down deep in our hearts. That you would be a God who by your power impresses on us the truth of your word and helps us to make peace. You are a God who will fight for us so we don't need to fight. Father, when we fight, we pray that we would make peace that we would imitate your character, that we would be sons of God indeed. That just as you are God who makes peace, that we would make peace as well. With those we have hurt or offended, those who have hurt and offended us, we pray that certainly in the body of Christ, that we would come to peace, that there would be forgiveness, that there would be restoration and reconciliation and restitution and all these wonderful words of putting back together what we broke. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.